I'm not good at fixing things around the house or the car or pretty much anywhere. Years ago, my wife went to Walmart on Black Friday to give me a Christmas present. It was a portable tool chest for my tools. Now, I'm using the plural word for tools very liberally. I had maybe two or three tools. But nevertheless, she goes on Black Friday, and I always watch the news on Black Friday to see if she's part of the the crowd that causes chaos and a riot at Walmart. And I never see her there, but she she fought through the crowds, and she, she went to the back of the store, and she grabbed this item, and now she turned around, and she's headed to the front of the store to purchase this item. And so she's swimming upstream against the crowd like a salmon swimming upstream only to be eaten by the bear. And she finally makes it up to the front. She purchases it. She brings it home, wraps it up, and gives it to me at Christmas. And I'm pretty proud of it, you know. And I, and I was proud of her for finding such a good deal because she really is good at, at finding deals like that. And and so I just thought for fun, you know, I would talk to one of my deacons about this. We lived up in Ohio at the time, and this particular deacon, his name was Dave. He was a car mechanic, a, a body repairman, and so he had tools, unlike me. And uh, and I thought just for fun that I, I would tell him how much Amy spent on my toolbox. And I said, Dave, I need to let you know that Amy spent $50 on my new toolbox. You know that toolbox that you have at the back of your garage, your two-car garage, and it takes up the entire back wall, that multi-level structure? How much was that thing? And he said, well, it was maybe a little bit more than $50, and he just sort of smiled at me, and I said, no, go ahead and tell me, how much was it? He said it was $8,000. And I said, well, that's good, Dave, but you know what? I can wheel mine around. And I know that Dave was probably very impressed and envious. I'm sure I caused him to covet what I had, and I should probably apologize for the spiritual decline that he experienced that day by me causing him to covet. But like I said, I'm not really good with tools or things around the house. And, And my problem is that... When I try to fix something, I usually make things worse. And so a one-hour project becomes an ongoing ordeal where eventually hired help is required, loans are taken out, and things just continually go down this dark rabbit hole, if you will. And, And I know some people that are sort of like that spiritually, they, they try and they try to get their life together, but everything just sort of spins out of control. No matter what they try, it just seems, seems to get worse and worse. And I think part of the problem is that they start off going the wrong direction. From the very beginning, they go down the wrong path. And of course, they're not going to reach the intended destination. So for example, if I told you that you needed to get to Albuquerque and you decided that here in Lubbock, Texas, you're going to go east to get to Albuquerque instead of West, well, you're never going to make it, at least not for quite a long time, because you went down the wrong path initially. Have you ever known someone that thought, you know, I really need to get my act together. I need to get my life right, and then I'll come to God 
because then God will accept me. Well, maybe that's you. Maybe you're that person that can never really seem to get their life together. And I would, I would just ask you if it's possible that maybe you've been walking down the wrong path all along. I wonder what God thinks about this idea of us trying to get our life right first before we come to him. Well, let's find out. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 25. We're in the series, Romans, Mercy to All. So we're in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 25. And when you found the place, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's word. In Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, here's what we read. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, A father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it, credit, was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Thank you. You may be seated. So let's answer that question. Which comes first, getting your act together or getting right with God? I mean, I know a lot of people think, you know, I need to get back in church and I, I need to come back to God, but really I need to straighten up my life first. 
So does, does God wait for us to get religious or to get good before he saves us? No. If you want proof, check out Abraham. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 4 again. We read, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, you might wonder what's going on here. You know, what's all this talk about circumcision? I I thought we were talking about getting right with God. All right. Well, here's the deal. For the chosen people of God, for the Jews, circumcision is supposed to be the outward visible symbol that a man believes in God. So what Paul is doing, and Paul is the one writing this, he's asking this question. Since Jews are God's chosen people, do you have to become a Jew in order to get right with God? Or does God save non-Jews too? And here's how Paul answers the question. He says, let's look at Abraham, the father of the Jews. If anyone can tell us whether we have to be a Jew first, it would be obviously the father of the Jews, Abraham. And so here's the question that Paul wants to know. Was the father of the Jews, Abraham, was he saved before or after he was circumcised? Now, here's why this is important. If Abraham was made right with God after he was circumcised, then maybe we have to become circumcised Jews before we can get right with God. But if Abraham was made right with God before he was circumcised, then we can be right with God without becoming circumcised Jews. So what's the answer? All we have to do is look at a a timeline of Abraham's life. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed God. And what did God do? God took Abraham's faith and he credits Abraham's faith to Abraham's account as righteousness. That happened in Genesis 15, 6. 13, at least 13 years later, in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham then is circumcised as an outward sign of his inner faith in God. Did you catch that? Abraham was an uncircumcised man when he got saved. Some people might even say that Abraham was a Gentile when God saved him in Genesis 15. And he only became a Jew later in Genesis 17 when he was circumcised. Here's the point. You don't have to become a Jew to become right with God. You don't have to become religious to become right with God. You don't have to quote, get your life together, whatever that means, to become right with God. All you have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's move forward. We know that Abraham is the biological father of biological Jews, but 
since he shows us that all you need to be saved is to have faith, then he's also become the spiritual father of all true believers in God. Look at verses 11 and 12. We read, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. You see, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Abraham is your spiritual father. Now, we know, of course, that God is the heavenly father. But you do also have some spiritual fathers, some spiritual mothers. For example, the person who led you to faith in Christ is a spiritual father or mother to you. So are the people who helped you take those steps toward Christ, who planted seeds of faith in your life that eventually grew up to reality. They are also spiritual fathers and mothers to you. Those who helped you grow spiritually after you came to faith in Christ, they are fathers and mothers spiritually to you. And even if you didn't realize it until today, Abraham is your spiritual father because he's the one who showed us that we can be saved by faith. Not by doing good deeds, not by becoming religious, but by having faith in God. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that, hey, Abraham didn't get saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Think about it. Abraham lived around 2,000 years B.C. The Ten Commandments weren't written by God until about 500, 600 years later than that. Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments of God uh, when, when Abraham was alive here on the earth. And so when God made certain promises to Abraham, for example, in Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham that Abraham would bless all of the families of the earth. In Genesis 15, when God promised Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Abraham, go out into the night sky. Look at all of the stars. Your descendants will be more numerous than that. In Genesis 17, when God promised Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. All of this happened totally apart from Abraham keeping God's law. God's law, the Ten Commandments, had not yet been given to mankind. And so Abraham would not be the heir of the world by keeping God's law, but by the righteousness that comes through having faith in God. If, if Abraham could somehow fulfill God's promises to him by keeping the law, then he wouldn't have to have faith in God. And neither would you. Think about it. I, I know this is sort of ridiculous, but what, what if God said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll save you from your sins and I'll let you come into my heaven when you die, but only on three conditions. Number one, never murder anyone. Number two, 
do a backflip. And number three, never ride on an airplane. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but if those were the rules by which we would get into heaven, what, what would we do? Well, we would do our very best never to murder anyone. And every Sunday when we come to church, we'd be practicing our backflips, wouldn't we? And then we would make sure that we would never, ever ride on an airplane. But that wouldn't take any faith at all. Hey, just follow a few rules and you're in, right? But you can't get into heaven by following a few rules. You can't get into heaven by obeying certain laws. Salvation is not through law, but it is through faith. And if Abraham could get saved just by keeping a few rules, by keeping a few laws, then God's promises to Abraham, well, they wouldn't be promises fulfilled by God at all. In fact, Abraham would have achieved it all on his own if all he had to do was follow a few rules. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise is nullified, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. You know, the law of God, the Ten Commandments of God, never have produced salvation to anyone. Some people think, well, you know, we live after Jesus came on the earth. And so people these days are saved by grace. And people in the Old Testament days, they were saved by keeping God's law. That's false. That's never been true. No one in the history of mankind has ever been saved by keeping the law of God. Because all, except for Jesus, are sinners. We've already broken the law of God. We cannot be saved by keeping the law of God. Anyone who has ever been saved before Christ came to this earth or after has been saved by having faith in God and according to his grace. The law of God does not produce salvation. What it produces is a knowledge in our own lives that we've sinned. It reveals God's holy character to a sinful world in order to convict people of their sin. And so if you want to be saved, you must have faith. Look at verses 16 and 17. We read, for it is uh, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Talking about Abraham, all of Abraham's descendants. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of him who he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Let me ask you this question. If God promised you something that was impossible, would you believe it? I mean, some of you would. But some of us might have some problems if, if it was really impossible. We, we might want to know what the terms of the promise were first before we could decide whether to believe God or not. If God promised you something impossible, would you believe it? That's what... God did with Abraham. He promised Abraham something that was impossible. You see, Abraham and Sarah didn't have any children, but God promised the impossible. In Genesis 17, verse 16, God said, I will bless her. And indeed, Abraham, I will give you a son by her. 
Now, why was this so impossible? Well, because Abraham was 99 years old. Look at verses 18 and 19. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was 100 years old, and he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. I mean, think about this. Not only was Abraham's 99-year-old body as good as dead, but Sarah wasn't able to have children at her age either. I mean, it's not like Abraham was an old man with a 24-year-old trophy wife and magic happened. It's not like that at all. Sarah was 89 years old herself. And yet God promised that this 99-year-old man and this 89-year-old woman would have a child of their own. What impossible promise has God made you to forgive you of all of your sins? I mean, let's just be real. Some of us don't really believe that God can forgive us of everything we've done. You might say, well, you know what? I hurt somebody some time ago. I hurt them bad. I hurt them and they might never recover. I don't think God would forever would ever forgive me for that. Or some people might say, I, I took God's name in vain. I took God's name and I used it as a cuss word. And I don't think God would forgive me for that. But God has said that he's willing to forgive you of all of your sins. You know, sometimes we get to the point where we just need to quit doubting God. We need to stop wavering in our unbelief. If God has promised us something, we just need to believe it. It's that simple. Verse 20, we read, Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. You know, some of you just have a hard time believing something if you can't see it with your own eyes. And I understand that. I get it. But here's what you got to understand. Your inability to trust is really an unwillingness to admit that God is able to keep his promises. I know sometimes there are people who say, well, you know, pastor, I just have a hard time trusting. I'm just sort of a doubting Thomas. I have a hard time believing. But the reality is, you don't want to admit that God is able to do something. It's not about whether you have a a certain type of mind that thinks in a certain type of way. It's about your willingness to believe that God is able to do what he said he would do. You need to stop that. Stop doubting God. Verse 21, we read him being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. If God promises something, he's, he's certainly able to do it. You know, there's a saying that we used to say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I think we need to bring that back. If God says it, we just need to believe it. And it's settled. So you might just need to quit overanalyzing everything and simply believe God because he is God. 
If he says that your faith has saved you, then that's it. If God says that he can save your marriage, then he can save your marriage. If God says that he can help you overcome your guilt, then he can help you overcome your guilt. You just need to believe that God can do it. Paul sums up Abraham's faith in God this way in verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. But we're not just talking about Abraham's faith. We're talking about your faith. Look at verses 23 through 25. Now, not only for his sake, Abraham's sake, not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. Now, did you catch that? Think about it. Abraham believed in God. And God made an impossible promise become a reality. You and I, we believe in the same God who did something even more impossible. What could be more impossible than a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman having a child? What could be more impossible than that? This very thing, that God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, this Jesus, who died on that Friday, was crucified publicly, and everyone knew he was dead. A spear was pierced into his side, up into his pericardium, where blood and water flowed out of his body. Everyone knew that he was dead, completely dead. Without a doubt, he had expired. And yet God raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Because Jesus, when he died on that cross, he was delivered over to death because of our transgressions. He died on the cross because of our sins. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And he was raised from the dead because of our justification. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was raised from the dead so that one day when you and I appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we appear before the Bema seat of Christ, we will be declared totally acquitted. We will be declared innocent. Jesus died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. What it comes down to is this simple question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you believe that God can raise the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, then you believe that God can forgive you of all of your sins. Then you believe that God can do anything he promises that he can do because God 
does the impossible. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray.